From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Ahead of Memorial Day, the story of fallen U.S. service members who are buried in American cemeteries abroad. Some 2,000 Colorado veterans of World Wars I and II are interred in these sacred places. They're located right on the ground where the war went through. Right, If you go to Normandy, I mean, you are on the top of the bluffs of Omaha Beach. Some of the men buried there didn't just figuratively die to free that land. They literally died to free that specific land. How U.S. war dead came to be buried abroad. And the bolder historian who's helping keep their stories alive. Then their radio call sign was Misty, fighter pilots who volunteered for an improbable mission in Vietnam. Every time you're putting a strike in, you put yourself at peril. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Ahead of Memorial Day, we have the story of fallen service members who are buried abroad. The U.S. government has 26 foreign cemeteries, mostly in Europe, but also in Mexico, the Philippines, and Panama. And by Pete Chandler's count, about 2,000 Coloradans are interred in these places, predominantly from World Wars I and II. Chandler is an educator in Boulder, and a few years ago, he took his son Ty to France, home to the largest of these cemeteries. Their trip turned out to be the start of a much longer journey to connect Coloradans to these service members. Pete, Ty, thank you for being with us. Thanks for thank having you. us. Uh, Pete, tell me about the timing of this trip in 2018. It coincided with an important anniversary. Yes, we considered going over to to France because it was the centenary commemoration of the armistice of the First World War. The end of World War I. End of World War I. And a hundred years later, I figured that if I'm going to go to the Western Front and and to witness uh, this commemoration, that I really had to make it happen. And I dragged Ty out of school for 10 days, and we went over there, and the, the last part of our trip was being in Paris, a rainy Paris, for the ceremony itself. Where was that in Paris? That was right in the, at the Arc de Triomphe. Yo-Yo Ma played. Yes. Ty, what stands out to you from that day in Paris? I mean, as my dad said, the rainy day um, was definitely memorable. Watching all the world leaders arrive, it was a cool day to be in Paris for sure. So while in France, the two of you traveled to Meuse-Argonne Cemetery, northeast of Paris. This is a cemetery uh, with American war dead. What compelled you to go there, Pete? Meuse-Argonne Cemetery, I had been to once before, and I just remember it being an incredible 
location and the experience of being at the cemetery, and I thought that would be something that Ty would appreciate. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. Just the scale of the cemetery, us being the only, pretty much the only ones there, walking through the thousands of white crosses was an experience in itself. When you say scale, it's representing the, the death toll. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not something you understand until you walk through looking at the names and where they're from. And you see Colorado, Texas, from all over the United States. It's here that the seed is planted for what becomes the Bringing Them Home project. Um, this is not a literal bringing home. What's your mission piece? The mission is really to honor people who are servicemen and women who are buried abroad, who served this country, died for the country, and for whatever reason are, were never brought home, and who might be lost to history. And it's to tell their stories, to help Americans understand that these cemeteries exist. Mm. You've brought a few stories home for us. Uh, shall we start with World War I veteran and poet Charles Bliss? Yeah, Charles Bliss was a Boulder High graduate, and he went to CU and then CU Law School. And after law school, he took a job in Cortez, Colorado, where he would fairly regularly, uh, according to his sister, he would walk about 10 miles to the Mesa Verde ruins, where he was just fascinated by the ruins, and he would walk amongst the, the rooms there, and it had just opened up pretty much. And he wrote a lot of poetry. It was very flowery, kind of romantic poetry. He was quite anti-war at the time, mm. apparently. But he decided later that he would enlist, and he eventually uh, made his way to, to France, and he wrote a tremendous letter to his uncle Byron about his experiences and the contrast between the poetry from Colorado and his description of the, of the battle sites and the, the carnage that he experienced is quite striking. Mm. And he died about a month before the armistice, actually. Oh, my goodness. So close to the end of World War mm. I. You don't have any poetry from Charles Bliss to read us, do you? Or any of his writing? Absolutely. Okay. So I, I've got two pieces. One is, is from his time when he was on the Western Slope. And it's an example of his romantic poetry, I, I think. Oh, good. So is this about Cortez? This is about the area around Cortez, okay. yes. Climbing all day in the mountains, through the pine and spruce, rolling rocks from mountain tops that set the echoes loose, fishing in crystal streamlets neath the quaking asp. Who would give a life like this for weary office task? <laughs> Wow, that sounds very modern to me, all these people who in the pandemic are reassessing work-life balance. Yes. But then I have a, a piece from his letter to his Uncle Byron describing his experience on the front. And this was right before he was, he was killed. I have a feeling this is going to show the contrast you were talking about. Yes. Some of the towns I have passed through still have rooms and portions of roofs left, but not so here. They are literally leveled to the ground. The earth is pitted with shell holes and strewn with barbed wire entanglements. Many thick woods have been shelled till almost nothing but brush remains growing. 
Big oaks are snapped off by shells and the ends of limbs shot off. Usually the hardest thing is at night, but today it is rather lively. We often march at night. We slop along through the mud and rain, and it is hard on men and beasts. The other night a horse fell, and we got to him and found him lying on the ground. He staggered to his feet and fell at the side of the road. We shot him and put in another horse. Caused a stop of perhaps five minutes. I cannot imagine what caused him to break over in such a fashion. And he is a name that you saw at Muzargan, or what? Actually, I did not see his name there. The person that I did see was a man named Friend Wright, and he's identified just from being from Colorado. When I was standing at his, his gravesite, I wondered, oh, where in Colorado is he from? Hmm. Could it be that he's from Boulder? And so when I came back, I, I did some research at the, at the Carnegie Library and the, at the courthouse in, in Boulder and found the names of the servicemen who lost their lives in the war. And then I went to the ABMC website. This is the American Battle Monuments Commission. We'll hear from them in just a bit, by the way. Then compared or put in those names that I found from the, the courthouse and found that there were nine Boulder County men who lost their lives and are buried in France. And Charles Bliss is one of those, one of those nine. As was Friend Wright, who's just from outside of Lyons. You also wanted to highlight a man named Emil Lind. Emil Lind. Why? What, what stands out to you about him? What strikes me about his story is that he emigrated to Colorado from Sweden when he was six with his family, his mother and two sisters and father. And they settled in the, the tiny town of Sunset, Colorado, that some of your listeners might have been to. Gosh, I'm embarrassed. It's west of Boulder. It's right on the Switzerland Trail. Okay. And it was a small town that where the railroad went through. The railroad served mines and tourists that were going on the Switzerland Trail. And Emil was was an engineer for the railroad. And he also played the violin and he played in the the local hotel that no longer exists. I mean, Sunset is basically a ghost town at the end of Four Mile Canyon. And he bought a house eventually in Boulder for, I think it was $600 in the middle of Boulder, which is basically what it goes for now, I think. (laughs) And before he went off to France, he signed that house over to his mother. I think he had a very good idea that it was possible that he would not return. Oh, goodness. And what do you know about his time in France and how he meets his demise? I don't know much about it. I believe he was a, a messenger that was riding a, a motorcycle between lines or you know, just communicating between regiments, if you will. And he was killed by, by hitting a, a landmine. And th- obviously you're trying to get clearer and clearer pictures of these lives. Ty, has your dad made a, a history buff of you? <laughs> Is this something you might pursue uh, more than as an amateur or what? Yes, for sure. Having a grandfather and father who are um, historians definitely makes me interested in the subject. And seeing all these sites and traveling has definitely got me interested in history for sure. Pete, what more do you hope to learn? Where do you want to take this project next? 
Yes. So I started small with the nine from Boulder County, but I really see the value and the possibilities of, of making this a bigger project and involving schools and, and students who could do research on a particular name. We're going to hear a story, in fact, about how a student actually helped the U.S. government identify some remains. Yes, incredible. So there's real power here of exploration and of discovery. Tremendous power. And I, I used to be, a, I was a history teacher for a number of years. And I think I, I was a little frustrated with the teaching of history being kind of about the battles or about the strategy and the, and the great leaders. And what struck me about being in the Meuse-Argonne Cemetery is that all of these white crosses represent stories of everyday men who decided to serve the country and to sacrifice their lives. And they all have very interesting stories. And I've only looked into a few. And just the few, I, I have found some very different stories, but fascinating. Are, are, do you ever run across women? Yes, uh, occasionally. The, from the First World War, where I started, and uh, Hattie Rifel is one woman who served as a nurse in London and died, and she is buried in uh, the American cemetery there. Huh. Pete Chandler of Boulder and his son, Ty. When we come back, why? Why are there more than 200,000 Americans who died in World Wars I and II buried abroad? And are these foreign cemeteries considered American soil? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Members of the Colorado National Guard are in the Baltics right now, training to work with NATO allies. It's a tense time, with the Russian border not far off and war raging in Ukraine. So along with practicing coordination and logistics, part of the mission is just reassurance. You think you're worried. What if you were Estonian? What message would it send to our partners if we said, oh, you know, things in the world are tough right now, we're not coming? I'm CPR's Caitlin Kim, and I've traveled to Estonia to see the guards' role firsthand. You can find all my reporting at CPR.org. Monday is Memorial Day, and today we're learning about the 200,000 Americans who died in World Wars I and II and who are buried abroad. Before the break, father and son Pete and Ty Chandler of Boulder talked about their project Bringing Them Home, to tell the stories of Coloradans interred in foreign cemeteries. Pete and Ty have stuck around to help me interview historian Ben Brands of the American Battle Monuments Commission in Washington, D.C. Hi, Ben. Hello, thanks for having me. Why are there foreign American veteran cemeteries? So the American Battle Monuments Commission's cemeteries date to kind of the massive death of World War I. And what we see happen after World War I is that there's kind of two simultaneous questions that America has to answer. The first is, how do we commemorate this first you know, major overseas war that sees uh, over 100,000 killed? And the second is, you know, what do we do with the physical remains of those Americans who died in Europe? And so in 1923, the Congress creates the American Battle Monuments Commission. Uh, with the mission of establishing a series of monuments across Europe to honor the achievements of the American expeditionary forces that fought the war. Simultaneously, uh, the War Department is establishing some overseas cemeteries uh, from the war dead, uh, and Congress quickly gives ABMC the mission as well to design and build non-sectarian chapels at those cemeteries. 
Uh, and so what you end up having happen is a series of monuments. You have 11 monuments uh, and two markers, and then the eight permanent cemeteries. And why wouldn't the inclination have been to bring those remains home? Well, that's actually a great question because it is a huge question. So during the war, you know, the dead are buried close to where they fall. There's just not the logistical capability with the war going on and the demands of the war for the bodies to be brought home immediately. Uh, And so then once the war ends, you have over 80,000 American remains spread across 2,300 temporary cemeteries. Temporary. Oh. Now, the Graves Registration Service does really great work to kind of mark and recover these bodies. But after the war, they have a question of what to do with them. And so there's actually a huge debate among Congress and among the public about what to do with the remains. Uh, some Americans want every single American body brought home. Others think they should all be remain where they fell in Europe. And eventually, 40% of families choose overseas internment, resulting in the creation of those eight permanent cemeteries with over 31,000 burials. I see. So can we assume that every American veteran buried abroad in these cemeteries is a reflection of their family's choice? Yes. Uh, for the most part, uh, this is a conscious choice of the family to leave their loved ones buried overseas. Mm-hmm. The one exception is that uh, at the end of the war, despite the efforts of the Graves Registration Service to identify and mark all these graves, the chaos of combat, the destruction of modern weaponry means at the end of the war, there's over 1,600 remains that cannot be identified. And all of those are interred in the overseas cemetery, with the exception of one set of unknown remains uh, that is brought back in 1921 and buried at the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington National Cemetery. Oh, yes. Now, you've invoked World War I several times, but my understanding is that uh, as recently as Korea and Vietnam there are service members buried abroad. So how does this unfold in ensuing wars? So the World War I program is really the model that is followed in World War II. And so what you have happen is after the war, the next of kin are offered these choice. At the same time the next of kin are being offered the choice, uh, the Graves Registration Service is working to concentrate remains into larger cemeteries. Once the next of kin uh, response is brought in, then those remains that have been elected by the family brought home are disinterred and sent to the United States, while the others are concentrated in these uh, permanent cemeteries. The construction of the actual, you know, marble architecture that marks the permanent cemeteries takes a little bit longer. Uh, 1934, you have all the cemeteries transferred by executive order from the War Department to the American Battle Monuments Commission, and the cemeteries and the monuments for World War I are formally dedicated in 1937. But what no one knows at the time, right, of course, is that 1937 is actually closer in time to the start of World War II than the end of World War I. And with America entering another world war, this one that costs over 400,000 American lives, there's again the question of what to do with the dead. And and largely they follow that World War I program. And it follows a similar process. The next candidate offered the same choice. Somewhat amazingly, it's almost the exact same percentage, 40% that once again elect for overseas internment, resulting in the creation of 14 World War II cemeteries with over 93,000 burials. Korea and Vietnam uh, represents a bit of a shift. Uh, so we had this kind of similar program for World War I and World War II that was marked by temporary cemeteries during the war and then a massive concentrated choice of the next of kin and then reburial and repatriation program. For Korea and Vietnam, America actually goes to uh, a new policy, what's called concurrent return. And so for Korean 
and Vietnam killed in action as soon as the body is recovered and identified, uh, as soon as humanly possible, that body is sent home to the family in the United States. Uh, so what you see in Korea and Vietnam is that we don't have permanent overseas cemeteries for those conflicts. The last kind of permanent overseas cemeteries that we develop uh, that are tied to specific wars are for World War II. What we do have for Korea and Vietnam is that there's still you know, over 8,000 missing in action from Korea and over 2,500 missing in action from Vietnam. And those names are engraved on the American Battle Monuments Commission's Honolulu Memorial oh. uh, to commemorate and memorialize their loss, uh, which mirrors the World War I and World War II, in addition to the burials of the World War I and World War II cemeteries. Each cemetery has a wall of missing where uh, the missing in action of those conflicts are honored as well. So there aren't these cemeteries in Vietnam or Korea, but there is an acknowledgement, at least, that there are the remains of service members in those countries. Right. And and the only remains that are still in those countries are unrecovered missing in action. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the Defense PWMIA Accounting Agency, the DPAA, is charged by Congress and the American people with the mission of continuing to work to identify and bring home uh, the remains of all World War II, Korea, and Vietnam missing. And we certainly see stories uh, related to that kind of repatriation. Well, Ben, thank you for laying that out so clearly. And now that I've done my job kind of establishing the foundation, I'm very eager to have Pete and Ty ask questions of you uh, based on their work, again, with the Bringing Them Home project, uh, metaphorical bringing them home, telling the stories of these folks who are buried abroad. Pete, what springs to mind for you? Well, I think, first of all, Ben, I just wanted to thank you and ABMC because I feel very lucky to have witnessed these cemeteries and how beautifully they're cared for. And they're just incredible places. They're spiritual places. One question that I did have is, I uh, know one of the people that I have researched a little, his mother participated in a pilgrimage to the Meuse-Argonne Cemetery. In France. Uh, in France in, in 1931. And I was wondering if if that only happened for a couple of years or did that continue? Yeah, so the Gold Star Mother Tours or the Gold Star Mother Pilgrimages, essentially every mother of a soldier whose body is buried overseas is offered the chance to go visit their son's grave. Um, only moms? Only mothers. Huh. Yes. So the fathers do not go. It is, is specifically for mothers. Or wives? Uh, uh, yes, I believe widows are eligible as well. Mm. And so that's offered through, I think, 31 through, I think they finish up in 33 or 34. And it's, it's interesting. They go, you know, visit the unknown soldier in Paris, uh, the tomb of the unknown soldier in Paris that is underneath the Arc de Triomphe. They're kind of feted the entire time. All expenses are paid by the United States government, and they split up from Paris and go to the individual cemeteries to visit uh, their children's grave. Now, that program is not repeated for World War II, hmm. uh, just largely because of, you know, the scale is so much different. Ty, is there anything you want to know from Ben? Yeah, one question was that once these families decide that they would like the remains to stay in Europe or wherever the war uh, happened, is there any way to change that um, decision and have them brought back to the United States? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that because I wondered if people might change their minds, Ben. Yeah, so there's actually a number of kind of related issues that arise from that question. So, no, once the next of kin has made a decision, it is final. Uh, now, there are some cases in 1949 when they're making these decisions that they decide, I want my 
husband to be buried overseas and then they change their mind and say back to the United States. And if the kind of cemetery hasn't been finalized yet, uh, that is allowed. But once kind of the next of kin makes that final decision and the remains are interred in the permanent cemetery, that next of kin decision is final. There is no ability for the next of kin to change their minds later. Uh, and what really what you see is not necessarily the next of kin changing mind. What you see is the next generation mm. uh, changing their mind, right? So if if your father is killed in World War II and your mother elects to have him buried in Netherlands American Cemetery, and then when your mother dies and she's buried in your church plot, uh, you'll sometimes see that children would like to bring uh, the father's remains home to lie next to the mother. Uh, and, and that is not uh, permissible. And there's a number of reasons that that first... Um, the kind of burial program to establish these cemeteries was a, a one-time thing. American Battle Monuments Commission does not actually have disinterment capability internal to our organization. We don't we don't maintain that skill set. Huh. And then the other issue you have is the cemeteries are really considered works of art and they're a commemorative landscape. And so the removal of graves that would would change the layout of the cemetery is problematic, not just for the affected grave, but for the entire cemetery and its role in honoring all of the dead there. Uh, the other issue you have occasionally is you'll have people who were World War II veterans and survived the war and die 30, 40, 50 years later and leave in their will that they want to be buried next to their comrades at Normandy American Cemetery, which is which is also not permissible. Oh. Um, these cemeteries are closed once they're dedicated uh, you know, in 1937 for the World War One sites, in 1956 to 60 for the World War II sites. And the only exception to that policy is if you have a unknown remain from World War One or World War Two that is discovered on the battlefield mm -hmm. or that is interred in our sites as an unknown and is subsequently identified by DPAA. In those cases the next of kin are offered the same choice they would have been offered at the end of the war. Oh. And so they can choose to have their newly identified uh, ancestor repatriated to the United States at government expense for burial in any cemetery of their choice, Arlington National Cemetery, one of the National Cemetery Administration, military cemeteries spread across the country, or in a private cemetery. Or they can elect to have the newly identified World War II casualty interred in one of our sites. And that does happen occasionally. Uh, mm -hmm. We had a case where there were twin brothers uh, that served on the same LST at Normandy. Uh, and what's, what's an LST? I'm sorry. LST is a, a landing ship tank. Got, okay. uh, it is a one of the large amphibious ships that the Navy uses to land troops and equipment. So the Piper brothers, Julius and Ludwig, are on the same ship. And it strikes a mine about two weeks after D-Day and sinks. Now, Ludwig's remains are discovered and identified immediately afterwards. And he, his family elects to have him interred overseas and he's buried at Normandy American Cemetery. Julius's remains are not recovered. However, uh, there is a set of remains from the ship that are recovered in 1961, but not identified. However, in 2015, some evidence comes to light because of some research actually a high school student in Nebraska does that says, hey, I, I think this remain based on the reports is probably Julius uh, Piper. And so she contacts the government and DPA goes and investigates the case. And in 2017, they identified Julius. And so now you have this newly identified uh, World War II casualty and his family elects to have him buried with his brother at Normandy American Cemetery. And so now they're buried side by side at Normandy. Oh, goodness. Okay. So I'm right to say there are 26 of these cemeteries altogether, Ben? Yes. To clarify, uh, the original World War I program is eight cemeteries. 
the World War II program is 14 cemeteries. Uh, but over the years, since the close of World War II, we've added to our portfolio. Uh, then we also have Mexico City uh, National Cemetery, which was a originally a uh, cemetery established after the Mexican War. Hmm. It was passed to us in the 1920s. Corazal and Clark, which are actually two overseas cemeteries that are still active. They still allow burials for qualifying um, American veterans and their families. Where are they? Uh, one is in Corzal in the Panama Canal Zone, and the other one is Clark Veterans Cemetery in the Philippines. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, Corzal was originally created when the P- Panama Canal was being built, uh, and then it was passed into our control. And then uh, Clark was originally on an air base that was on the Philippines, but when the base closed, uh, it went through a, a number of travails and eventually came into our portfolio. And both of those are still active for burials. And then the final uh, to complete the 26 is in 2017, we acquired the Lafayette Escadrille Memorial, which is in a suburb of Paris. It honors uh, the Lafayette Escadrille, which was a squadron of American pilots who flew for the French army in World War I before America enters the war. Yeah. Uh, that was built privately by private donations from French and American uh, public. Uh, but in 2017, it passed to us. And that memorial in the basement of the memorial is a crypt that has burials from the Escadrille. And so now we have 26 cemeteries and 32 monuments uh, spread across 17 countries. Why would someone be buried in the Panama Cemetery still today? Uh, So most of the the original burials are from when the Panama uh, Canal Zone was being built. It was built under control of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, Today, it is uh, largely American veterans who die uh, and are expats and live in the region. Oh, I see. Hey, Ben, I have a question. Uh, is the land given to the United States by the host countries? Is it actually part of the United States or is it French? So it is. Uh, this is a question that comes up a lot as well. It's one of our myths that we have to bust all the time. Uh, the land is sovereign territory of the host country that it is in. This land is not considered American soil. It's not like an embassy. Right. It is not like that. That's actually after World War One. That is an offer that's on the table from the French government, but the Commission and the American government declines it uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of which is it would have made emergency services very difficult uh, if you were, you know, a foreign country technically. And then there's also, you know, there's the the rumor and the occasional issue with there was a concern that if we made it American soil, people would try and use the cemetery as sanctuary. You'd have outlaws on the run trying to hide in the cemetery so that the local gendarm couldn't arrest them. Uh, so it is it is territory of the host nation, and it is uh, leased from the host nation to the United States government for no, no rent, no fees, no taxes in perpetuity. Ben, have you been to all 26? I have not. I have only been to 11. So I work at our Arlington office in Arlington, Virginia, and then we've got an office in Paris, and I work out of the Arlington office. And I also joined the agency in October of 2019, so I was able to get all of, you know, one trip overseas in before COVID changed all of the rules. What did you feel at a particular cemetery? Give me a memory that stands out, a picture in your head. Yeah, so I mean, I think the thing is really for all of our cemeteries, it's just such a powerful emotional experience being there. And even when you look at the pictures and understand the mission and, you know, go online and read some of our publications or, or look at you know, the database that includes the information for all the dead, uh, it just cannot compare to physically standing there. And the power of place in being there is incredible. You know, you have the grave plots, but you also have the memorial architecture. You have the artwork. 
battle maps that talk about the actual achievements of these folks. And so for me, the feeling is always that, you know, the most powerful part of the cemeteries is the grave plots themselves. And they're really, you know, looking on that row upon row of white crosses and stars of David uh, set against the green grass and, and the kind of peaceful setting really conveys the scale of sacrifice of these generations. And then you combine that with the very conscious design of the memorial architecture and artwork, which helps you know convey meaning to these deaths, right? The battle maps convey the actual achievements the, that these dead did not die in vain. And I think that's incredibly powerful. And I really wish every American could have the chance to go visit them. Uh, but we also you know work hard to bring these stories home as, as you all have been working to do because uh, our sites are overseas, but our you know our audience is the American public and, and most Americans will never make it to one of our sites. And, and how do we tell that story to them in the, in the United States? Mm-hmm. You know, part of the criterion for the choice of these cemeteries is that they're located right on the ground where the war went through, right? If you go to Normandy, I mean, you are on the top of the bluffs of Omaha Beach. And in many cases, not just in Normandy, but at all of our sites, uh, I mean, some of the men buried there didn't just figuratively die to free that land. They literally died to free that specific land. Oh. And that kind of, you know, power of place is, is an incredible uh, part of the experience of visiting the cemeteries. Wow, that just gave me goosebumps. It also helps me understand why a family might have wanted their loved one buried abroad. I have to say, I struggled with that when I thought about it for myself. But the notion that you'd be buried on land you helped keep free is uh, incredibly powerful. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us for these uh, insightful questions and equally insightful answers, Ben. Thank you. Very welcome. Thanks, Thanks, Ben. Ben. Thank you. Military historian Benjamin Brands of the American Battle Monuments Commission discussing the U.S.'s 26 foreign veteran cemeteries. Pete and Ty Chandler of Boulder also joined us to talk about the Bringing Them Home project. When we come back, their radio call sign was MISTI, a group of fighter pilots who volunteered for what was largely seen as an impossible mission in Vietnam. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Before the gold rush, Colorado did have boom towns. One of the first was ideally situated where the Arkansas River spills onto the Great Plains. In the autumn of 1842, fur trappers and their families built an adobe fort there, and by the next spring, there was a settlement. As mountain man Jim Beckworth recounted, we gave it the name Pueblo. The word means both village and people, and has been used to name permanent villages of many native communities across the Southwest. Eventually, this Pueblo would attract people from all directions, especially when the steel mills came to town. Pueblo became one of the most diverse cities in the West, with steelworkers speaking more than 40 languages and dozens of newspapers keeping them informed, including El Colorodeño in Spanish, La Voce de Popolo in Italian, Pueblosque Novice in Slovenian, and for a few years in the 1880s, the English language, and aptly named, Pueblo Welcome. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with support from Sheets and Giggles. During the Vietnam War, a group of fighter pilots volunteered for what was largely seen as an impossible mission, preventing the delivery of weapons and supplies from the north into the south. These pilots were known by their radio call sign, MISTI, and close to a dozen of them were from Colorado. A new documentary, The MISTI Experiment, The Secret Battle for the Ho Chi Minh Trail, 
will air beginning this weekend on PBS. The executive producer is Dean Eckenberg. Dean, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. This is more than just a film for you. You were in Vietnam and participated in the MISTI experiment. What was your role? I was a flight surgeon attached to uh, the squadron. What did that so mean? I was essentially, yeah. essentially, I was the doctor for these uh, pilots. A flight surgeon has specialized training in aeromedical uh, kinds of issues. I was trained for about three or four months to become a flight surgeon and take care of people who uh, were at high altitude. Was that a difficult role? Uh, well, I was like the family doctor to a group of flight, uh, group of pilots. It was, uh, was it difficult? Well, I was trained to do it, and so it wasn't especially difficult. The notion of you being the family doctor, though, is uh, a description that I appreciate. Um, so you actually went up in the jets with these pilots on occasion, I understand. What, what stood out to you about the physical and mental strain that they had to deal with? Well, most of these missions lasted uh, three hours or more, and so they had to hit the tanker a couple of times. So they were flying over North Vietnam. They were being shot at very often, sometimes continuously, and so they had to keep moving the airplane, jinking it back and forth. So the physical stress on the body was tremendous, not to speak of the stress uh, of uh, being shot at, finding targets, and putting other... uh, fighters in on them. Yeah, we'll speak of that a bit. What was the mental strain that you saw on them? Well, you know, these guys were self-selected. They were trained to be pilots. They were selected to be fighter pilots. Then they were volunteers for this particular mission. So this particular group of men were, uh, the stress that they saw, they dealt with. They knew how to deal with it. So it wasn't like uh, it was manifested, except maybe in in certain extreme situations. Hmm. What would be an extreme situation they'd face? Well, when they lost a buddy, you know, when you know these were two seaters, and sometimes uh, when they get shot down, one would come back, the other one wouldn't, and that was particularly stressful. In a few words, why did you decide to make this film? Well, this film was started by someone else. He was an, an Emmy Award-winning producer at, uh, at KQD in San Francisco, and he started the interviews. He was a, a producer that, that had a lot of experience in these things. But then he had a stroke, and he said he wasn't going to finish it. It was going to be just all over. So he said, if you don't finish it, he said that to me, it won't be done. So I... Uh, my grandson, who's a film producer, and I got together. We shot a new beginning, new ending, and we thought we'd have a movie to show the truth. But the reception was really phenomenal, and uh, that's why it's being shown nationally this weekend. All right. The line cut out a bit there, so I think I, I missed it a bit. But the, the point is that you took the mantle for this and brought the film home. There were 157 Misty Pilots, as we said, a number of them had connections to Colorado, including Roy Bridges Jr. Today, Bridges lives in Colorado Springs. In 1968, not long after graduating from the Air Force Academy, he was sent to Vietnam, arriving there New Year's Day. Bridges told us one of the first things he noticed when he arrived at Phuket Air Force Base 
was the group of pilots in their clandestine operation. I was intrigued by their mission, you know, flying up in North Vietnam, rescuing people, knocking out uh, surface-to-air missile sites, and basically um, battling the flow of supplies down the so-called Ho Chi Minh Trail to South Vietnam. What you want to do is make a difference, okay? And I thought I could make more of a difference flying with Misty than the routine missions down in South Vietnam. Bridges would fly 72 missions with Misty between July and November of 1968. I understand that the pilots, for the most part, were limited to just four months of flying as Misty's. Was that because of how stressful the conditions were? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, You were limited to a max of 100 missions, no more than that. And that took about three months. Hmm. And then they would rotate back to their home squadron. Their missions involved flying into North Vietnam, about 30 minutes away from that base. They tried to identify where the supplies coming from the north were being moved and stored, And doing so from the sky took some time and skill. So here are some of the pilots in your film. We're developing our vision, and you'll hear the expression misty eyes. That means that they could see the things that were heavily camouflaged. Nature doesn't like regular patterns. So if you see a rectangle sitting in the middle of a field, there's a good chance that it's a man-made object of some kind. One of the biggest strikes we made, I think uh, Charlie Summers found it. Uh, He saw the dust collecting on top of the the high trees. They'd been using his truck park so much that the dust had filtered on up and he kind of saw a dust pattern. During their missions, the pilots moved rapidly, but also flew at relatively low altitudes, which indeed made them ripe targets. And in the documentary, One pilot estimated that 30% of these misties were shot down. Every time you're putting a strike in, you put yourself at peril. The minute you picked up, pulled up a little bit and shot a rocket, everybody in North Vietnam knew what was happening and everybody started shooting at you. I got hit on uh, 13 of my 58 missions in Misty and uh, sometimes you didn't even know it. You got back and you saw a hole in the airplane and other times there was no doubt in your mind you got hit. Every time you got hit, you know, you'd you'd question yourself, was I doing something stupid? So 34 Misties were shot down, eight were killed in action. Roy Bridges, whose plane was hit during one of his sorties, uh, talked about a, a rescue mission he flew. He said, He was in the air for eight hours straight trying to clear a path so others could go in and retrieve the downed pilot. Was that a typical situation? Was there such a thing as typical, Dean? Well, uh, yes. A big part of their mission was to rescue downed pilots in their area. And so it was typical. There were a lot of rescues that were done. And during those times, you had to really stay up there and to be in contact with the fella on the ground and then try to strafe and keep all the uh, bad guys away from them so a uh, a helicopter could eventually come in and pick them up. You know, Vietnam was a very unpopular war in the United States at the time, and I, I wonder how that played into your decision to make the film and how you approached it. 
Well, <clears throat> you know, it, it was, but for uh, those of us who were there and those of us who fought it and had a different kind of a meeting. And it was a very personal meeting for those of us, especially who uh, saw real combat. And so to make the movie, it was no question. I mean, it was we thought we'd have a souvenir for the troops, but it seems to have uh, struck a chord with, with uh, a lot of people because it's going to show it eight, over 800 times this Memorial Day weekend across the country. Hmm. Were there times that it was hard to make the film uh, in terms of uh, just your own history, your own memories? Not really, not at all. Uh, Danny uh, Danny McGuire was the pro who put this together, put the first part of it together. We just had to shoot the beginning and the ending and clean it up a bit. And my grandson is a graduate of uh, University of Michigan Film School and works in uh, making movies and such. So it was a, a rather fun experience to make the film. Ah, fun. I'm not sure that's what I expected to hear. But, uh, Dean, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Dean Eckenberg is executive producer of a new film premiering Sunday on PBS, The Misty Experiment, The Secret Battle for the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I want to go back to Roy Bridges Jr., who, after flying with the Misties, became an astronaut, an almost lifelong dream. Alan Shepard, went to the edge of space as our first astronaut in May of 61 when I graduated. And, of course, that was the year that President Kennedy announced that we were going to go to the moon before the end of the decade. So this is an exciting new uh, field of exploration. And I always wanted a little adventure in life, so I thought that would be just the right thing. Bridges flew the space shuttle Challenger on an eight-day mission in 1985. He was scheduled to pilot the ship a second time in May of 1986, but Challenger was lost in January along with his crew. In time, he became director of the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Title IX is not just about money and whose shoes are nicer. Erica Krauss is the Colorado PI who helped the nation see Title IX as about much more than sports. And her new memoir, Tell Me Everything, is a riveting look into a landmark sexual assault investigation here in Colorado. It's also our next read for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Join the conversation live on stage to kick off Lit Fest in Denver, June 10th. Details and free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. Telluride singer-songwriter Emily Scott Robinson mixes folk and country as she reflects on faith and loss. Her album, American Siren, released last fall, features a song about her cousin, who became an army ranger right out of high school. He served in Afghanistan, and he had a really complicated experience over there, as most service members do. He came back with a lot of trauma and... He also was really, really proud of his service and loved the people he served with. That trauma eventually led James Twist to take his own life in 2019. He was 27. More service members die by suicide than in battle. Twist's story unfolds in the track Hometown Hero. You went to Afghanistan You were only 19 You never talked 
Robinson wrote Hometown Hero with her cousin's wife and children in mind. It's very, very hard to explain to um, three kids, five and under, how their father passed away. But they talk about him being in heaven and they talk about him a lot. There's a final line in the song. And your kids are gonna grow up Asking about you How you could love someone and leave them could be true. And that's something that you do learn about suicide is that he loved his family and he loved his children more than anything else in the world. And that he also died in this way um, and that both things were true. And so these kids and the folks who are left behind when somebody dies by suicide have to live with these two truths. And those are truths that in this way that grief kind of expands your heart and allows you to understand that there are really wide capacities for the human heart. To hold these two truths, I think, is something that you can really only learn by loving somebody who has died in that way. Emily Scott Robinson of Telluride, remembering her late cousin, Army Ranger James Twist. And if you or someone you care about is struggling, Colorado Crisis Services has a hotline. It's free and professional. Text TALK to 38255. That's TALK to 38255. And that is Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News and KRCC, with thanks to our team, I'm Ryan Warner. You should be with us now. You should be here. We should be sitting by the fire on our second round of beers. We open the whiskey. We're out back in the shop. We're raising our glass to you. Still numb from the shock. Cause you're the only one who's a missing and it doesn't feel right You should be tucking in your baby girl and kissing her goodnight And your son is full of questions about how daddy got to heaven We never thought you'd go this way 